Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Hello, and welcome to Authentic Living. You know, regardless of its external realities, the soul is the poignant touchstone of life. That is, we touch it to know that we are alive. Thomas More, our guest for today, is an expert on the soul. With 16 books, 5 videos, 3 CDs, and 7 audiobooks, including his original bestseller, Care of the Soul, and others like Dark Night of the Soul, The Soul of Sex, The Reenchantment of Everyday Life, Soulmates, and The Original Self, Thomas More has enchanted us all. Thomas was trained as a Servite monk, but because of his own beliefs, left the order just before being ordained as a priest. He's also been a college professor, a psychotherapist, and a musician. His maverick thinking in areas of religion encourages his readers to find the soul in religion. He urges us to consider the depth of existence, to be faithful to our original and unvarnished selves, to love deeply and with care for the self. He teaches us that life is not meant to be survived, but lived to the nth degree, to the amazement of the soul. And yet he does not paint us a pretty story of happy ever after proportions. Rather, he teaches us to find the river of soulful energy flowing beneath every single moment, regardless of that moment's emotional overtones. Welcome, Thomas, and thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for inviting me. You know, I'm just going to jump right in here, Thomas. You speak to us as individuals and as a collective about the soul, so I think the first thing we have to do for our listeners today is to get a clear definition of soul from you. Can you help us with that? I can help. I can't give a, a you know, definitive definition, but uh, we can try. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I mean, there are many, many different ways of looking at the soul, and people use the word different ways. I use a very special way that goes back about 3,000 years, and I, I refer to the soul as, as being different from the spirit. Uh, the soul is that deep, mysterious part of ourselves and our world uh, where we find meaning, uh, where, from where we make deep uh, connections uh, with other people and with things and animals and the world around us. And it's a place where it is so misty and, and rather difficult to, to find your way in like a dream uh, that we use um, poet, poetic language rather than definitions and quantifications for it. So uh, we have this habit today of quantifying things, and from my point of view, that really doesn't address the soul because the soul needs to be more poetic and nuanced. Right. So, so trying to put it in a little box wouldn't help us. Well, it doesn't fit in any box. It'll it'll find a way out. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in that light, I'm going to quote you here. As a, You said, as a therapist, I look for the cycles and circles that spiral through a person's life for the deep mysteries that create an identity and provide security. Can you tell our listeners about these cycles and circles that create an identity? Yes. I think normally when we look at life, especially from the outside, we think of 
a straight line. We think of evolution or growth, something like that. We talk a lot about personal growth. I think from the soul's point of view, though, it's something different. We go through experiences over and over again. For example, you may uh, have a relationship with someone and uh, it doesn't work out, and then you find yourself in another relationship and you're going through some of the same issues and dealing with the same things. So uh, that kind of circling and cycling, it may happen in, at work, too, that you go from one job to another and you find similar themes coming through. Or you look at your dream life and you say, why do I, still, why do I keep having the same kind of dreams over and over again? There's a kind of circling, cycling that goes on in the soul. I think that's how we move at that deep level. We, we don't keep progressing and we don't keep learning. You, know, you learn something and you move on. At the level of soul, you, you have experiences that, that etch themselves into you so that you, you become more and more of a deeper, more interesting person as you go. So those uh, patterns and cycles that we go through where we repeat and repeat are not necessarily evidence of our dysfunction and our um, lack of insight, but maybe uh, ways of growth, what methods that we use to sort of get deeper. Yes. Uh, of course, you know, I, would, I probably wouldn't use the word growth of that because we don't really grow. We, uh, we, we may not grow in those cycles. You know, we may, we may go backwards. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and yet going backwards sometimes is very valuable. Right. Uh, so I, it's very difficult, I think, given our, our normal ways of thinking, to get rid of this idea of evolution, that we're always moving forward somehow. That progress is the most important thing. It isn't, necessarily. Uh, slipping back, uh, failing, going over the same things again and again, uh, finding yourself backward, backwards instead of forward, these things can be very good uh, because um, they force you to reflect on yourself further and to, um, and to not get so heroic uh, as you might be if you're trying to, to move ahead all the time. Mm -hmm. And that, that idea of moving ahead all the time is really perpetuated by our society today where self-improvement is the name of the game. That's right. So you find you, you don't find the word self-improvement in my books. You don't find growth. You don't find necessarily progress or advance or anything like that. I'm try, I try to use language that, that redeems uh, so much of our experience that we reject when, when we hold these ideas about self-improvement and, and advance. I think we, when you do that, when you buy into the spirit of the times, uh, what happens is that you judge these experiences that you have as bad, um, and they don't have to be. They might be okay. You may be getting something from, from repetition and from uh, failure and from loss. Mm -hmm. So can you give our listeners an example of what someone might be able to get from those experiences? Yes. Uh, let's say that uh, it's a matter of, of work and... and uh, you're in a job and you really want it because uh, you've been educated for it and you, you have it in mind, you've had it in mind for a long time to advance in a certain direction. And you fail or you, you, know, you fail in a project or the, uh, the, the people in charge tell you they, you know, they don't want you anymore, they fire you. Uh, and you feel this is a total loss. Uh, and, and yet that kind of loss can, can make you think all over again, and maybe maybe that 
that story, that narrative that you've been involved in for so long is not best for you. Maybe there's something else that life can offer you that you've never considered before. So loss can offer a new way of imagining your life. Now, as I say that, I'm well aware that I've gone through that experience myself where several times I've wanted to go in a certain direction of my life and really desperately wanted to succeed, and I was fired. And uh, I was fired one time from the university, and that allowed me to become a writer. And I wouldn't be writing these books if I hadn't been fired. Hmm. So there's that kind of thing that, that goes on. It's mysterious the way life unfolds. And I think we have to be flexible and open to all those changes. Yeah, and that that brings me to the next point, uh, that you've written so much about nature. Uh, you've talked about how we, as a modern world, have sort of eliminated nature from our conscious experience of what is sacred and what is true within ourselves. If I've interpreted your stand here correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if that's true, then how did, how did we get so far away from nature, and what is it, has it to do with our healing as a person and a collective? Well, that's really a, a, an interesting question. It's, it's not easy to talk about. Uh, I think what, happened, what happens, maybe happened in history too, is that, um, that we get worried about ourselves, uh, about ourselves. Are we living a good life? Are we going to succeed? Um, um, are we going to find meaning? And all this focus on self gets so big after a while that um, that nature it just does, simply doesn't have a place. I mean, you, you know, if if all you're doing is devoting most of your time to personal success, uh, you don't have much time to sit back and look at nature and and wonder about it. I mean, wonder is very important to be able to to look at nature and say, what is going on there? Is there something going on there that maybe has some answers for me? Um, Maybe I could be more in tune with nature and feel more fulfilled and maybe have some wisdom about how to advance and go ahead. Uh, so I think part of it is this emphasis on the person and on the individual that is so much part of our life today. That, that is not easy to harmonize with a very open attitude toward nature. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can put this into some kind of poetic format. If we... If that inner part of us that I think you're calling soul is kind of at one with nature, then when we settle into that place inside of ourselves, we're not arguing with ourselves about how bad we're doing or how good we're doing. We're just being in that place. Yes, I think, you know, there is more a sense that that your life is okay because you can see that nature has cycles, that nature... Uh, like like now, this time of year, nature is uh, is going through an ending, a darkness, and the leaves are falling, and cold weather is coming, at least for some of us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, that that teaches us. I think if you're in tune with that, in the sense that you are aware of what's going on in nature, and you it, you don't even have to be learning from it too consciously, but simply by by being aware of it, you. You learn the lessons. You learn that that the same rules apply to yourself. Uh, then I think um, then I think we have a much bigger sense of who we are and what we're going through, and we understand ourselves better. It's when we lose sight of it, when we get heroic, where we have to we believe so much in our own ideas of success and advance 
that we lose sight of nature because nature is not like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really hope our listeners are listening to that because I, I really see that so much, even in my own practice, in, in our lives where we're constantly measuring ourselves to find out how we're doing and what, whether or not we're going to make it or have made it or are we doing good enough or all of that. And we're going to talk some more about that after the break. This is Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews, and today we're talking with Thomas Moore. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T, with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earned my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with Thomas Moore exploring the whole idea of the soul. 
You know, Thomas, last, in the last segment, what we talked about is that whole idea of not measuring ourselves, not trying to attain some goodness, or at least that's the way I, I heard it. You speak of getting, getting spirituality out of the heights and into the depths. What do you mean by that? Uh, partly I mean what I've learned from uh, certain religions like the, the ancient Greeks. I, I've learned a lot from them that uh, to be spiritual uh, sometimes means to be uh, very much uh, involved in your life. Like uh, the Greeks, for example, had a goddess called Hestia who was seen in the fireplace. I mean, the fireplace was her kind of a physical uh, way of presenting herself in a home. So the, the warmth of the home and the focus in the home, the, her, her name means focus. So the focus of the home when you're there and, and focusing on life at home, um, that is a form of spirituality, and I would say everything connected to it. So uh, taking care of your home and doing the work around home, like today I did some painting at home, I consider that a spiritual practice. Uh, in in re- relation to what these other people saw as a goddess, you know, we don't have that language in those images today to help us see the spirituality. Uh, but... I think that we can nevertheless see that that uh, something as simple as as being at home and making your home a comfortable place, uh, providing your security there and giving a focus to your life and your family, uh, that that is a spiritual practice that is very deep. And it doesn't go way up. You know, you don't do it on the mountaintop and you don't go out and tell millions of people all about it. You just do the work day after day. And it's humble and it's uh, very profound and it, it makes your life rich and makes your relationships possible. So really just being in the moment, really living your life, sort of that Zen concept of chop wood, carry water. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's, uh, I mean, my emphasis there is on home, not so much as, as moment, but uh, I think it is similar, yes. You, if, if whatever you're doing, you do it, uh, you do it fully engaged. And in the, in the physical world, you see, it's in the physical world that you find the spirit. You find the spirit. You don't separate those two. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people separate the spiritual from the physical. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of trouble that comes from that. So uh, what I try to do in everything is try to keep the physical realm and the spiritual realm uh, together, uh, enmeshed with each other. Absolutely. I do. I think that I agree with that so much that there's that that duality, that idea that the body is the thing that makes me a sinner and the, and the mind and the spirit, well, those are the noble, more um, good parts of me, and I have to keep them separate and not honor my body and listen to the spirit. And that whole concept is one that keeps us split. And what you're saying is that living into our physicality, living into the physical world is a form of soul connection. Exactly. Okay. Especially these things in the physical world that are so precious, like a home. Uh, other things, too, like nature, uh, like going camping or going out into the woods or going to the sea, these are all spiritual practices and spiritual experiences, even though they're directly connected with a particular aspect of the physical world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that light, in that, in that same frame, I want to explore a little bit about what you said in one of your articles, as you mentioned, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's philosophy of living as though God were not a factor in the presence of God. How do you interpret that philosophy, and what would it mean for the soul of religion today? 
that's a tough one because I think most people would not agree with me. Um, I and I don't mean to say that what that this what I'm about to say applies to anybody else. It's my own experience, really. I, uh, Bonhoeffer, I think, was saying, and it's very clear when you read his letters from prison, he was saying that as a pastor, a very, very dedicated pastor, that when he used the, the, the word God, that a lot of people meant something by it that he didn't. He had a sense, I think, unless I'm just adding, you know, putting on him my own ideas, a sense of the mysteriousness and the unknowability of God. Uh, and kind of a mystic, more of a mystic's uh, experience of the divine. And he was worried about uh, making the, the name God too limited and too physical and factual, uh, and just expressing what a person wanted it to mean. So when he says that to live in the presence of God uh, as though God were not there, it's paradoxical, but I think it says exactly the way I want to live, and that is, to see the divine everywhere. And I mean that when I say that the divine is in the home. It's there, that the, that God is in nature. Uh, a lot of people do, you know, don't agree with that, that God could be in nature. They see nature as something separate. Um, I would say that God is in, uh, in marriage. Uh, it's so that there, you, you see God as, as within and behind everything. That's a mystic's point of view as opposed to being separate outside, uh, sort of controlling everything. And um, so I like Bonhoeffer's paradox. That's how I live. I live as though God were not a factor. So people complain that I don't use the name God much in my books. I do occasionally, but not very often, because I don't want to get into that realm. I don't know, I don't know how to use the name without being into the division of, of where the spiritual is, cut up, is split apart from the ordinary. And the, and the physical realm. So that's why I avoid the name God so much in my, in my writing, but I don't avoid the experience or what the name points to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that we can have a rich um, experience of the divine without the connotations that are implied by the word God. Yes, I, well, I don't want to push that too far. I think mm -hmm. that the, most people would like to keep the name, you know, use the name God. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, uh, you know, when I was uh, doing my graduate studies in religion, it was the time of the death of God theology, and that's what a big thing at that time was really not about the loss of God, but, the, but a, a shift in the way we think about God. And that affected me quite a bit. And I've, I've read a lot of Zen, I've read a lot of Christian mystics, and they all agree that one has to be very careful with your language, and you want to keep the mystery always. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. And I, in my writing, I try very hard to maintain the mystery while always, uh, always trying to evoke the presence of God. Right. And, you know, we can, I think we can do that in, that in our depths, too, even in the sadder moments. For me, I was personally happy to find out that St. Anne Sexton was one of your favorite reads, and she's mm -hmm. also one of mine. Um, since she eventually committed suicide, lots of people see her work as somewhat morbid, and I don't. But I'm curious, what is it about her work that draws you? Oh, well, a number of things. One is I love her as a, as a writer, you know, I mean, one writer to another, you know, mm -hmm. where we work with words every day and see the beauty and originality and freshness of her language and her images. That's really, that's the first thing that strikes me. But after that, I, I, she's a writer, she's a poet who... Yes, she was always uh, attracted by suicide most of her life. Um, and that gave her, her life a certain 
seriousness and depth that maybe most of us don't experience. And she spent a lot of her time in mental hospitals and, uh, and uh, in treatment and with uh, and in therapy. And yet when, then when, she, when she writes, she writes from that place where she has a lot of very strong anger and fire. And so her expression is so raw and so goes so deep so that there's nothing sentimental about it. I like that. And then she gets in her writing, especially her theological writing, she gets uh, kind of dark and, oh, what's the word, irreverent. And I, there's one thing about the spiritual realm. I love irreverence. I, I don't trust reverence too much. So I'm very happy about that with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that whole idea is is one of those things that I explore, I mean, every day with clients, of course, but also just in my own spiritual experience that that darker part of who we are is often where we find the divine. Do you agree with that? It's completely. Uh, it's, I think the, the wrong direction to look is toward the sentimental ideas, uh, you know, all the wonderful, big, uh, beautiful language. Uh, sometimes that sentimental language takes us away from the divine, I think. So we find God, we find divinity, uh, often through the, the ruptures, the, um, the pain, the losses that we have. So many people find God when they get sick. You know, they've, they've ignored the divine until finally they get sick, and the sickness gives them uh, uh, an, an, an avenue, a doorway. Or other people find it when they lose something precious to them, or lose their money, or lose their work, or lose people around them. Um, all of these losses can uh, quite naturally make you begin to wonder and then finally approach uh, divine and realize that a purely rational life or the material life is not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is, must be a distinction between the material life and the physicality of life. Can you kind of help us a little bit with that? Well, do you mean like materialism? Is that weird? I guess so. You know, when you say the material life, that we don't want to be a part of that, and and yet we do want to enrich our lives with the physicality of life. Mm -hmm. So how? how? Well, my kind of the the way I normally think of materialism, I have sort of an equation about that. It seems to me that we get materialistic when we lose touch with material, with matter. Uh, I think that we are people who, as we talked about how we're, we're, we're rather cut off from nature. Um, we, we like to amass and possess a lot of things, but I don't know if we love things too much. We have so many things that are made that are copies of everything else. We, have, we don't have so many original things. We don't have the craft that we used to have in days gone by. Um, and I think this having a lot of possessions Freud would say that having so much is a sign that we don't have anything. Mm. And I think that's true. And so I think our materialism is a sign that we don't love matter enough, that we don't love the physical world enough, that we don't have things in the sense of really having them. I think it's really good to possess things, to have things you love so much you can't do without. You know, to have a home that you just love, you just love. To have a car you just love. Today people love their computers. I think that's terrific. Mm-hmm. To love the material world, but to have twenty, you know, let, let's say, let me say, five or six televisions in your house may not be loving your television. You know, the more you have, sometimes the less you love. 
So uh, that's, it's about our relationship to the physical world. That's what makes all the difference. Okay, so in that sense then, the more we love what we do have, the less we need to have more and more. I think that's true. Okay. I think right. that's true. You love the, and why do we love these things? Because we can appreciate uh, the craft in them or their beauty or their, what they're made of or how they're made. And so we, we, get, we get better about things that way. Mm-hmm. And, it, and this, as you know, I'm sure it flies in the face of, of all of it that we know about how we should live sort of alone and separated from physicality and from, you know, uh, life in the streets and the urbane, you know, all that. So I think we can pick up there after the break. This is Andrea Matthews, and today with Authentic Living, we're talking with Thomas Moore. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. It was a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earned my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit a-I-H-T dot E-D-U. All my love. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. web at skillsusa.org. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. 
That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back. This is Andrea Matthews, and this is Authentic Living, brought to you by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. Today, we're talking with Thomas Moore. You know, in the last segment, Thomas, we talked just a little bit, or at least that's how we ended up uh, talking about um, the whole idea that this sort of is this kind of talk that we're doing is a little bit different. It's not what we usually hear in our churches or our schools or our normal institutions. So conveying this message that it's okay to be without measuring yourself, that nature is a part of how we nurture ourselves, how we nurture our souls, what, if, if we had a way of saying, you know, this would be clear, how could we convey that message to the whole, <laughs> to the leadership, to the, to the world in a way that says, okay, let's turn this around and look at this differently without it being so scary? Well, if I knew a way to do that, I'd be doing it. I, I, I've tried different ways. I've, I've tried to be more political. I've tried to write for in areas that, that might reach people like that um, in, in those positions, but it has never worked for me. So I, I've always felt that you know I, I should only do what I can do and, and try to do that the best way I can. So my, my way is to keep writing books. Now, what I... Uh, I love words. Maybe that's why I love language. I love writing. I just, can't, I just love it. I, I never run out of ideas. Um, I am moving in, in different directions. I'm writing fiction now, and I'm, uh, I'm writing different styles. So uh, that's a way for me to, uh, uh, to try to reach people too in a different way. I think we have to just keep saying the things over and over again. And each person who does it is adding a little piece, uh, you know, to the whole picture. And uh, uh, eventually, you know, that way, um, things do change. And when you think about it, the, um, uh, our attitudes toward sexism and toward age and toward the environment have all shifted remarkably in the past 50 years, all because of, of words, of language that people have kept talking and talking about it till it becomes part of the common vocabulary. Yep, yep, I agree with that. And, you know, in that same vein... On the same day that we Americans voted in the first black president, California passed Proposition 8, and Arkansas voted to not allow gays and lesbians to adopt children. You've written about gay marriage, and since I think that topic has everything to do with the evolution of the collective soul, I wanted to ask you about a statement you made. You said, there's a link between resistance to gay marriage and the mechanistic, reductionistic, and materialistic philosophy that dominates today. What do you mean by that statement? Uh, what I mean is that... Uh, the the, um, the the attitude that, that many people have that gays should not get married I, I ask where does that come from I mean what is it is it is it just uh, uh, that people don't like uh, gay people or that they they think that marriage uh, is too precious that it should they, they've always just thought of it as between a man or a woman I think there's something deeper going on and that is that there's a resistance to life in it, deep down. I mean, it would take me a long time for me to bring you step by step to that place, but I think there's a resistance to life, that uh, life is very complex. It really doesn't fit into the categories that we, that we are comfortable with. It's always 
and moving us on just when we get comfortable. Um, so life is varied beyond limit, and uh, but yet that's what gives us our vitality and makes life worth living. That life is so varied. So I think that when people say, "Well, marriage is only the way I've always thought it to be," it's like hiding out. It's like climbing back into a very small world, and it's a it's a mechanistic world because it's a world without imagination. It's it's this contemporary world of of fact, uh, only facts and only information and experts and a lot of opinion, but not much imagination. I think it takes a lot of imagination to say, well, if, if I feel a certain way about a person and, and I can get married, why can't I imagine somebody else feeling differently, even though they have a, it's a different style? So I think it has a lot to do with small-mindedness, uh, lack of imagination, and ultimately a, a distance from soul when we can't uh, allow people such variety in their lives. Right, and, and as you said in um, one of your, the book about uh, the soul of sex, sexuality has so much to do with the soul that, and gender identification has so much more to do with the mind and heart than it does with the body, as we thought about it. Can you say some more about that piece? I, I see gender as, as not so obvious. I mean, if if, if we th- we think of gender as just male and female, and it's all clear, that's all there is, then we're reducing life to the physical realm alone, to the material realm, to uh, to biology. And in my whole the whole idea of my writing a book called The Soul of Sex was to move sex beyond biology. So I see gender as being very interesting. Uh, to me, there must be like forty million genders, you know, <laughs> or more. Maybe there is an infinite number of genders. That gender is an aspect of who we are as people. It's not a category out there you put people into like a bin, you know, and into a box. It, it's a, it's a, a very subtle aspect of the soul. So that I am male in a way that other men I know are not male. And I would say the same with a female person could say the same thing. We don't fit neatly into a box. Um, we, we're, we, our gender ideas, our gender feeling is different uh, between each person. Every person feels gender and experiences it differently. I think if you begin to think that way and look at the soul of gender and the soul of sexuality, then that will lead you eventually to see that uh, that uh, dividing up people and, and you know saying there are straight people and gay people is 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 very limited. And, and then they get judgmental about it. It's, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it really is, it comes from fear, a fear of your own gender and a fear of, of all the possibilities that you could have in life. Right. So fear, bottom line, then the small-mindedness and the lack of imagination and the reductionism comes from that baseline of fear. I think it does, yeah. It's okay. a fear of life, a fear of life. I, I, this is a general point. I don't think we fear death nearly as much as we fear life. And that would lead me to my next question. You said that um, that every day has its little mortifications that you interpreted to mean making your own death. Yes. Can you say some more about that? Yes, I think that every day, uh, every day things happen that that mortify a bit. Uh, you may, you know, make a mistake uh, in a fact in something you say. You may. 
uh, say something to somebody that you wish you hadn't. Uh, you may, um, you know, do something that you wish you hadn't. There are these mortifications that happen to us all the time, every day. And they, in a way, I think, bring us deeper and deeper into our soul because that, that is a way of undoing, unraveling our heroism. And this, the feeling that we know everything and that we can do everything and that we are always advancing ahead, uh, it, it pulls us down and, and makes us feel the emptiness and the gaps within us. And that's where the soul is. That's where you discover your soul. Okay, so we don't discover the soul through trying to live out of fear of living. We discover the soul by allowing death to be a part of our living. That's, That's right. It becomes part, of, and death is in the sense of loss. And you know, it reminds me of uh, there's a story by a playwright, uh, Ionesco. There's a woman in his, in one of his uh, plays who is very smart. She can add, but she can't subtract. I think that says a lot about all of us. We're very good at adding. You know, we can always add more ideas and add a lot to our lives, but we're not too good when life subtracts things from us. Yeah, and it takes them away. Yeah. But that's where we, I think we get to the soul through subtraction. Okay, okay. So it sort of takes away, strips away the things that are not really real and gets us down to something that's real. That's right, that's right. Right, okay. So then how does ritual and symbol and myth bring us closer to alignment with the soul? Well, all of these things are, of course, the stuff of religion, and uh, they are poetic. Ritual is a poetic way of acting, and myth is a poetic way of telling stories. Uh, and mytho mythology, in particular, are sacred stories. They are stories about how the world works in very big language, in you know, very big ways. I mean, mythology usually has gods and goddesses and devils and angels and heroes. It's a very big big imagery. It's not, it's not like a novel that would be the story of a person's particular life. It's the story of those forces within us, the anger within us, the remorse that's within us, the feeling of privacy and integrity that's within us. All of these things trying to work themselves out within ourselves and within the world in which we live. That's what mythology talks about. That's why it's so useful to religion. It's poetic because this is the life of the soul. It's it's dramatic, it's poetic, it's musical. Uh, it's, the arts really depict what the soul is much better than the sciences do. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where we come to sort of the drama life, which of course could be depicted through your fiction, I'm sure, but that whole idea that it really is that, I don't even want to use the word journey, it really is life essence itself that says, I'm... There's something symbolic, there's metaphorical stuff here that really has to do with my soul. So, okay, we're going to talk some more about that after the break. This is Andrea Matthews with Authentic Living. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T, with a soulful pathway to deep learning. 
In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my PhD in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, <laughs> she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Uh-huh. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. <laughs> Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at bornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we've been really lucky today to be able to talk with Thomas Moore on Authentic Living. Um, today we have discussed all the, all the potentialities, I guess, is the word I would use for trying to discover what it is that is soul, trying to wrap words around that. And I, at the last segment we talked about ritual and symbol and myth. I want to ask specifically about ritual because that is so much a part of our religions. Can you say some more about ritual and how that can help us define the soul? Well, there's ritual that is part of, of religious practice and spiritual practice. That is, uh, uh, it's a way for us to, to get involved in a way that our bodies are involved. Uh, the arts are usually engaged in some way. So uh, all of this ritual action, you know, I've... I've grew up a Catholic, and so I'm very, very familiar with all the very rich ritual of that religion. And, and uh, all of that activity, all the music, the chanting, the gestures, the movement, the costume, everything, it impresses, it impresses you so profoundly. You know, it gets deep into your memory and deep into your, your imagination. And uh, it, what gets in there is uh, a sense, an appreciation for the divine, for the, the mysterious. 
for for spiritual emotions like grief and sadness and joy and celebration and community and all these things. So it's it's not an intellectual enterprise center or exercise. Uh, it it just gets into your whole being through ritual. Uh, now ordinarily, symbol and poetry can do that too, but when you do it with your full body involved and all your senses engaged, I can tell you that that my experiences when I was young as a Catholic of the music and the, and the ritual is so much part of me that it's never going to leave me, and uh, it affects me all the time. So I think ritual can do this, and that's why it's so valuable. It gets into the soul, and it expresses these uh, these profound mysteries without without translating them into ideas that are too limited. Mm-hmm. So, and when you said that the arts are sometimes involved, that it reminds me of part of experiential psychotherapy, but it also, uh, in the Gestalt sense, but also um, it it makes me think of um, the metaphor behind the art, uh, but beyond the metaphor, also just the doing of the art. It's kind of a mixed bag there, isn't it? Yes, the the, the doing of the art does something to you, too. Now, for me, uh, I'm a musician, so for... Every day I play the piano. I've played most of my life every day. And I can't say why I'm doing it. And it's different from listening to music. It's something else. You are, you are really there. You, you get lost. To me, it's a form of meditation because I'm totally wrapped up and absorbed in the music. But playing it makes me even more absorbed than if I were listening. So my body is engaged and... Uh, uh, the uh, expressing the art and and being totally caught up in it is seems to me to be no different from meditating in a very deep way as part of a spiritual practice. Yeah, and it, and right now as you're saying that, I'm thinking about that old uh, passage in in somewhere in the Gospels where Jesus says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your body and all your strength." And I think of that's kind of what you're doing there. You really are. In your mind, in your body, in your heart, in mm-hmm. your you know, and you're really being there. And I guess that would be really being in love with that that moment, that activity, that gesture, that ritual. I was, one of the things I often think is that the, um, the the society we live in, which is so rational and so uh, mental and uh, and technological, really has very little place for the arts. I mean, arts are entertainments that are off to the side. That, you know, they are not really at the center of our life they, the way they would be in a more traditional culture that's not so technological. And I think that the more we bring soul into our experience, into life, the arts then, uh, the, the arts show themselves to be much more important. And so to, to be involved with music or, to, or dance or to, to really pay close attention to architecture to look at the visual arts, uh, to go to galleries and museums and just uh, contemplate these things, these images, that all becomes then part of the life of the soul. And it's very closely related to the experience of dreaming every night. We, we learn that, uh, I think we learn through the arts to be more involved in our nightlife where we, we sort of go off in excursions into dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where symbol comes in as well. Yeah, symbol and other world, another world, a, a mysterious world where we don't understand th- 
things. We don't know the meaning of everything. And yet we can live in that place that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. Yep, and that 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 is not the same as what we do in our everyday culture, which is to say we have to understand everything in a right. very logos sense, a very That's logical right. sense. That's right. And yet in every day, at the same time, every day, if we would stand back and look, we're involved in dramas all the time. We are doing movement. We are moving in different ways. Even as we drive a car, we're doing a little dance. And uh, we are uh, speaking poetically, uh, even though we may not realize it. So the arts are part of daily life, although we don't usually think of them that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it plugs back into the, what you were saying earlier about imagination as well. brings the imagination into the realm of your conscious experience. Yeah, so that's, that's right. So really, uh, you could say, I think you can say that the mind is the main instrument of the of the of the uh, of the spirit life the upward life and the imagination is the main instrument of the life of the soul so okay bottom line as as an individ, as individuals and as a collective we develop the soul of our existence or we develop awareness of the soul of our existence how do we do that you do it in all these ways that I was saying. You 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 uh, um, you take life. You live your life. You take it on as it's given to you, not force it into ways you want. Uh, forcing life is a way to avoid the soul. You listen. You watch. You allow yourself to go through experiences of emptiness, of loss, of failure, of ignorance, and uh, by allowing yourself all of these experiences by watching nature. Uh, you, you live from a deeper place. This is what I, this is what Rilke, the poet Rilke, says. He says, "Live from a deep place." That's the point. You live from a deeper place, and uh, that's really what uh, caring for your soul is all about. Mm-hmm. And from there, we get to um, experience joy and peace and sorrow and all of that that goes with the life experience itself. There's a great deal of liberation and relaxation in that life. You're not fighting life so much. You are participating in it. Right. You're enjoying it. Absolutely. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for being on our show today. If you would like to um, connect with Thomas, you can go to www.careofthesoul.net. His latest book, A Life at Work, is out in the market now. And so, again, Thomas, thank you so much for allowing us to talk with you today and sort of pick your mind about what it is to be to live a soulful existence. Thank you, Andrea. It's a okay. wonderful, wonderful program. This is Andrea Matthews with Authentic Living, and we'll be back next week. And remember, your job, if you should choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.